Welcome to Speaking Candidly with Candace. Real people, real stories, real hope. I'm your host, Candace Schoner. Intimate partner violence is a serious public health problem in the United States that affects millions of people every year. When intimate partner abuse occurs in adolescence, it is called teen dating violence, which is the subject of our podcast today. I'd like to welcome my guest, Alex Weathersby, Prevention Service Coordinator for the Shelter for Help in Emergency, and Christine Lazarushak, a mental health advocate who has experienced teen dating violence and is co-hosting with me today. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me as well. I'm going to throw this question out to you, Alex. Could you explain to the audience a little bit more about what teen dating violence is and the impact it has on everyone? Yeah, so teen dating violence is specifically focusing on um, any type of violence that happens within teen relationships. So that could be emotional, financial, physical, or sexual. Um, And it's estimated that 1.5 million teens experience some form of dating abuse each year, but that only one in three, so about 33%, will ever actually ask for help. Um, for dealing with that. We also see in research that emotional abuse in particular, so not physically harming somebody, but trying to control how they feel, who they're around, how they dress, stuff like that, that that's the most commonly reported type by teens when they do ask for help. How long have you been in your current position and what did you do before, if I might ask? So I've been at the Shelter for Help and Emergency as the Prevention Services Coordinator since January of 2021. Um, So that was interesting coming in right on the tail end of COVID. Um, And then I was working in Fredericksburg, that area before that, at a rape crisis center. um, And I was also doing prevention there. So obviously this field is got to be somewhat emotionally challenging as someone working as an advocate or awareness specialist. Can I ask what got you initially involved in the mental health field? Yeah. So when I first went to James Madison University for undergrad, um, at the time that I was there, they had a student support group where we would run a helpline, a 24-7 confidential helpline for other students. Um, And a lot of students would call that specifically to talk about experiencing sexual assault or talking about um, dating violence. And on that helpline, we would offer support. We would help explain to them what kind of on-campus resources they had. But most of the people who called just wanted someone to hear them and to validate their experience. They just wanted someone to tell them that what they were experiencing wasn't their fault, that there were places and people that could offer them help and they just wanted to be able to have their feelings in a safe space. Um, So that's what really got me interested in doing this field professionally is being a part of that for all four years that I was there. Christine, as a victim yourself of teen violence, 
Would you mind sharing a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, so when I had my experience, I was about 14. Um, I was a freshman in high school and I had met a boy in the summertime and, um, you know, I was pretty insecure at that time, but I also had lost my father when I was young. So I didn't really have any male role models that were in my day-to-day -day life. Um, so I got involved with this boy and um, it started out very well. Um, I, I went from feeling like the wallflower to somebody that was being valued and it over time morphed into um, emotional abuse, which then escalated to physical abuse. And it went, it went from there and it lasted about two years. And we also talked about this again, he was actually stalking you at one point. He was, um, we were pretty far in at that point. Um, my health had started deteriorating from the situation and my mom had, who was not aware of what was happening, um, had decided that I needed a respite, took me away to the sunshine for a while. And um, it turned out that he had been watching our house and um, was literally waiting for me to come home um, to, to find out where I was because he didn't know where I was. Um, and, and I tried to break up with him at that time. And that was a very long, um, a long process trying to get out of that situation. Which I'm so sorry to hear that that happened to you. I'm curious, and this question I'm gonna ask to Alex, because you may know this. Do you know what the legal, um, what laws are on the books to prevent things like this. I know with stalking, and that's what made me think of this question, is there's obviously restraining orders and things like that. Is there state regulations or is there a government regulation that would help uh, prevent teen dating violence? There's both. Um, each state has a different definition. Um, some states' laws are very descriptive, and we'll say like, a lot of different things are covered under this particular law, where other states, it's a little bit more generalized. Um, something that I feel like with stalking, since you brought it up, um, stalking, we tend to think of as if it's experienced with force, fraud, or coercion. Um, sorry, that was like, I'm in a completely different range. That's sexual violence. Sorry. Um, with stalking, um, with the law, it's anything that would cause a reasonable person to feel fear. So an example that people bring up a lot of the time is if like I'm at school and somebody shows up and gives me flowers to outside people that might look like a really sweet or romantic thing. But to me, maybe those flowers are a message of I'm watching you. I'm still watching you. I know where you are. I know like who you're being around. Right. So to me. That's something that might make me feel scared, whereas other people aren't seeing it kind of through the same lens. And I feel like that comes up with a lot of different pieces of teen dating violence, as a lot of times we think of jealousy as, oh, this person's expressing like strong feelings for me. They want to give me their time and attention. Like they really want to be around me all the time. So 
for some teens looking through that lens, they don't realize that that's an unhealthy thing. Um, and so it can be really hard for when it does escalate to something that is illegal, right, where there's been physical harm or harassment online or something like that. A lot of teens might not realize all the pieces um, that were leading up to it are part of that violence experience. That's a very interesting uh, take on the situation and something that I would not have thought of that perception from outside can look different than the person who's actually receiving the attention. Yeah. And that's why with stalking cases, sometimes it can be really hard, even when um, people, whether they're youth or adults, have a lot of evidence or have a lot of um, incidents to go off of. Sometimes it can still be hard for them to get that support because to outside people, it doesn't look like anything really dangerous is happening. Do you know how the laws have changed over the years now when Christine had her situation you were 16 is that right in that age range well I was 14 when we started dating mm -hmm. and so we were together for about two years before before I got out of it um and I would talk to my I would talk to my friends about it I had a couple really close friends um I wasn't in the popular crowd so um that's why the attention was so meaningful to me um but I, I don't remember knowing anything. I don't remember any classes or groups or anything where they talked about dating violence. So when it actually started becoming violent, I was shocked because I didn't even know that that was a possibility. I was pretty naive at that point. I imagine most people are shocked when something of a relationship looks really, really good and then all of a sudden turns really bad. Both of you, and I guess Alex, what are some of the warning signs that people should know about um, if they're dating and the warning signs of basically dating abuse? I imagine some of them are noticeable. Yeah, something that I feel like comes up a lot when I'm working with teens locally is when, whether it's a friendship or a relationship, one person wanting to have a lot of control in an unequal way. So telling them, like, I don't want you hanging out with this person. That person likes you, so you can't be friends with them anymore. Or trying to control, like, oh, don't go to class. Skip class so you can hang out with me. Um, and then as the relationship grows, it starts controlling everything about, like, how you feel about certain things, how you feel about yourself. Like, oh, you shouldn't like those things. Those things aren't interesting. Those things aren't, you're not good enough to do that, right? You're not smart enough to take that major in college and be able to pass, right? So as the relationship goes on, the person's world becomes smaller and smaller. Um, and something that I hear a lot also is the, what we call isolation, where the abusive person wants to become the center of the survivor's world, so they'll start encouraging them to stop talking to friends or stop going to like outside activities that the person has a lot of like supportive and connective people around them. Um, a lot of times with like family relationships, they might try to drive a wedge in there being like, oh, your family doesn't support us. Like your sister doesn't like me. So you shouldn't tell her anything about our relationship um, and just really bringing that person's into a space where they don't have safe people they feel like they can talk to or connect with. Christine, I see you shaking your head yes. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. Isolation was a, was a big part of it. Um, if, if I was not, his name was Dave. If I was not with Dave, he knew where I was through somebody else. Um, because, you know, we didn't go to the same high school, but we lived close to each other. And, um, so I, I did find out later that there was often people watching me and keeping track of me. Um, so that he would know if I was doing anything wrong um, from his point of view. The other thing that I was going to bring up, um, Alex, as we're talking about this before, I'd really like you to talk about the cycle of abuse. But before we get into that, um, I would love for you to speak to our audience, um, potential parents that might be listening, of what red flags they should be looking for um, with their teens. Yeah, that's a great um, thing to note. So something that I see a lot is if the teen suddenly starts like not wanting to attend certain things or not wanting to like talk to people that generally they have really close relationship with. Um, if they start to become like really quiet, like they don't share their thoughts anymore. They don't um, their personality doesn't really like shine the way that it used to. And if everything, again, is just about this person that they're in the relationship with, right? So like, they feel very afraid to even talk about or do anything if they think their partner is going to find out and won't like it. Um, or if everything revolves around how do I make this person happy? How do I do what this person wants? How do I spend enough time with this person? Right? So for some teens, they may not talk to their parents very openly about, oh, I'm experiencing this or, oh, this person's making me uncomfortable. But the parent might notice like, oh, like every time we have a conversation, it's about this person and you always seem really stressed or really upset or like you're already doing something wrong. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Great. I want to get to back to the cycle of abuse, but before that, I want to just ask, based on your experience, do you think parents are tuned in enough to their children, to their teens while they're dating? I think they can be. I know that some teens that I've worked with have really positive relationships with their parents where they feel like they can talk about things um, without being judged and that their parents going to really listen to their perspective and try and find a way to make sure that they're safe. Um, I think I also have worked with parents and with kids where um, the kids don't feel safe to talk about it. And usually in that situation, it's because they've also been in really controlling situations with those parents, right? So they may think, well, my parent checks my phone and tells me who I can and can't talk to. So for them, it's really hard to differentiate that. Why is it okay if my parent does it, but not okay if my partner does? Um, mm. And so I think with teens, the most important thing that a parent can do is to not be judgmental towards their child. That doesn't mean that we can't have opinions about what they've been doing, right? Or be concerned about their safety. But if kids feel like they're personally being like cast as you're wrong to be dating, it's your fault because you shouldn't have been doing this or talking like this or dressing like this, then it's really hard for them to open up later if they need help from somebody, right? Absolutely. 
So let's go back and talk about, if you could share, uh, as Christine was asking you, the cycle of abuse. Yeah, so you actually described it very well earlier, where at first the relationship might feel really good, right? It might feel like, oh, this person's giving me so much time and so much attention. They want to know everything about me. Um, we feel like we're soulmates because everything that I say, they say, they feel too, right? They agree with me on everything. Um, but early on in a relationship, if one person's main goal is to have their way all the time, then a lot of times they'll start pushing smaller boundaries first. And then over time, more and more of that control, control starts to get taken away. So... Go ahead. Sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. When you said pushing smaller boundaries, are you talking about the way that somebody dresses would be considered a small boundary versus you cannot be friends with X, Y, and Z? Sure. So that could be an example, right? And it maybe early on it looks like, oh, don't go to this thing so that we can hang out. I have barely gotten to see you and spend time with you. And then later on, it's you're not allowed to go here, right? So maybe early on, it's sometimes phrased in a way where it's about the love and the connection and the chemistry, but over time it becomes more, um, it may feel more intense in a dangerous way, if that makes sense. It yeah. does. Yeah. We also see that, and this is something that comes up a lot with teens when they're asking, well, why would somebody stay with someone or go back to somebody who's treating them poorly? Because you have that early phase where everything feels amazing and awesome and romantic, a lot of times right after doing something really violent or harmful or disrespectful, the abuser will shift back into that phase, right? They'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I was just stressed or it was because I was drinking or it's just because I love you so much. And so that kind of tricks the brain into thinking maybe this was a mistake. Maybe this was because I did something wrong. And if I just do what they say, stop talking to this person, stop dressing that way, maybe then it'll always be good. But I definitely experienced that um, mm -hmm. in, in my situation. And, and just listening to you, you know, kind of took me back a little bit, um, you know, with in reference to the, the cycle, I, I definitely feel like there was a progression um, and, it, and it started with the possessiveness, the little things like you were talking about. Um, mm -hmm. Making comments about my clothes, making comments about who I was talking to um, because we lived in a neighborhood that, you know, we both knew people that went to my school. Mm -hmm. um, he would start actually targeting boys in my school that were talking to me um and that that made it really difficult because some of those some of those kids i was close with because i had been in school with them since i was like in kindergarten um mm. and you know there were things from the past people um that i had dated and had male friendships with and he would be very brazen about it there was one time we were at the mall because that's what we did back then we walked around the mall and we were in the mall walking along and this guy that I had been friends with that I had sort of cut out because I had started dating him approached me um, to say hello and he literally 
grabbed him, slammed him against the wall in the mall, made a giant scene. It was so embarrassing. Um, and, and so there were always little things like that, that when I started to relax a little bit, I would always start like anticipating what is the next thing going to be? Yeah. Yeah. And what you're saying reminds me now of like something that we haven't mentioned yet that I think maybe is more common now than it was then is that doesn't even necessarily have to happen in a physical place. Right. So in that situation, he was physically like creating a huge scene. Whereas if it was something like um, a lot of my teens are on like TikTok or Instagram or Snapchat and they'll do similar things. Right. Of being like, don't talk to my girlfriend. Don't talk to my boyfriend. Like telling people like going through their each other's DMs or like trying to see like, who are you following? Why are you following all these girls? Right. And so it also feels like a controlling thing, but because it's not happening in a big public space, they don't see it as intense, even though it's the same behavior, it's just happening in a different um, environment. So I think that's something that concerns me a little bit is that with social media, it almost feels like there's a distance between the behavior, even though it's literally the same, it's still controlling and possessive. Well, I'm glad you brought up the social media aspect because I was wondering what influence you thought social media had and what do you think about parents setting restrictions? I think that social media is a tool um, and I had a conversation with Christy about this yesterday that was really interesting um, because there's also been opportunities where um, teens who've been experiencing this might first realize that what they're experiencing is abusive because they see it online, right? If they are scrolling through Instagram and they see something that says, yeah, you deserve to like say no to your partner if they're trying to pressure you into something you don't want to do, that might be the first time they've ever heard that. Or their friend might feel like the only safe way they can still communicate and not be isolated is by texting each other if they're not allowed to be in the same place physically. But at the same time, a lot of abusers will use it in a, as a method of control. So I think a lot of times it depends on what's the social media being used for, right? What's the goal behind it? And then is there still choice and connection rather than control and coercion behind it? What is some advice that you would give to teens to prevent teen dating violence? I think something that comes up a lot is when someone's first interacting with somebody, keeping an eye out for, are they trying to push those little boundaries, right? So like I had a group recently where I had two students where one kept on like touching the other one's hair and they were doing it in a way where they were trying to be like silly, but the other person kept saying like over and over, like, stop touching me. I don't want people touching my hair, right? And so I said, hey, if they say no, that doesn't mean that they don't like you. It doesn't mean they're like being mean to you. You have to respect that, right? So if I hadn't been there to do that, if I just brushed it off like it was no big deal, then that student's getting the message of, oh, this person can come into my space and like mess with me in a way I don't like and nobody's going to be there to support me if I say no, right? So I think those two things is noticing when the boundaries are getting crossed for the teen is a really important thing. And then for 
if there's a friend or a adult in the space, like helping to back them up on that. Um, because if they feel like nobody cares and everyone's just treating it like it's a normal thing, then they're going to just disregard that uncomfortable feeling in their body. Right. Yes. And I was just thinking as you were talking about that, um, you know, with the prevention work that you do, are you, are you interacting with the, the teachers and are they being trained on what types of things to look for? I would love to do more of that because when I used to do in the Fredericksburg area, I did a lot of like presentations during um, health classes. I was always having teachers come up after being like, you know, we never got this. And I'd be like, yeah, me either. Um, but they'd say like, this is really good information. And it's hard for them as instructors to be in a space where they know what's happening isn't okay. They know that they're the ones responsible for helping kids learn to navigate this. But sometimes it can be really hard if you don't have particular language or you're not sure, like, how do I respond if a student asks me a certain question or is dealing with something that's like really intense and really scary for me, right? So I'd love to do more of that because I know that a lot of teachers want to be there for students, but it can feel really hard if you don't have um, a background in this type of information. Sure, and I can imagine with the way things are currently that it's, it's probably even more difficult to even get the teachers who want to be involved for fear of them getting in some sort of trouble for sharing information about a student have you come across that at all? Yeah, I have a lot of students whose biggest fear with a parent or a teacher or some adult understanding more of their situation, their biggest fear is that they're going to be judged. And it's going to turn into, well, you're too young to date. Why are you doing this? Why did you not tell anybody sooner? Why didn't you like a lot of victim blaming rather than trying to like really ha hold space for them? And I think a lot of instructors and a lot of parents are also nervous about what if I like respond in a way where maybe the student doesn't break up with this person or maybe they get back together with this person. Like, where do I step in and say, like, w put their foot down essentially. And I think that's a really hard thing to navigate between like feeling responsible for keeping youth safe while also making sure they're feeling confident and respected in their own decisions. Do you know if teachers are re required to report? Yes, uh, so in public schools, teachers are mandated reporters. So that means that if they know a student's currently being harmed or has plans to harm somebody else, um, they do have to report that up. Whereas if you work in a domestic violence shelter in Virginia, um, there's very few situations in which I have to do that. We're not considered mandatory reporters because um, we want there to be an extra sphere of safety for people to be able to be honest about where they are. So for me, some of the schools that I work at, the students might feel more comfortable telling me certain things rather than their teacher because they know unless it's something very specific, it's not going to um, potentially go anywhere else, right? Right, because I imagine, and you've just you said this before, I think the 
biggest obstacle to reporting it is that fear of judgment. Yeah. And I think for a lot of students, they also tend to kind of minimize what they've experienced. So they'll, I've heard a lot of kids be like, oh, there's drama or it's toxic rather than actually calling it abusive. So sometimes that can be hard too, is to really know all the details to make an informed decision. Right. I know um, in thinking back, when I finally got to a point where I was so completely frustrated, I started telling people in school whoever to whoever would listen. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was nobody believed me. They mm-hmm. thought I was making it up. Um, and that was re- that was really hard because by then, by I had by the time I got pushed to that point, we were into some, to some pretty severe physical abuse. And to have people telling me I was making it up was very difficult. And you know, it wasn't like I had a lot of witnesses because most of the time when he did get physical with me, there wasn't anybody around. Um, mm-hmm. But as things escalated, he did get to a point where he he would actually be physically abusive to me in front of his friends. Um, and there, there were multiple times where I really thought, like, this is it. I'm done. He's going to he's going to end this for me. And uh, and I just hate thinking that this is still happening um, to teens out there. It is. It is really awful that it is happening to teens out there and it's still happening. And it's great that there are places like the Shelter for Help and Emergency where people can go to for a safe space. Um, Alex, what other resources or even Christine would you recommend for people who um, may be experiencing the dating violence? Yeah, for teens, I really like to recommend loveisrespect.org. So they have a text line. A lot of the teens I talk to don't really like to talk on the phone as much. So they really like having, uh, and it's a 24-7, it's confidential and anonymous. So um, that's also something they really like is that they can just call or text anytime. Um, And with that, the site also has a lot of other resources Um, One thing that's kind of cool is it has like healthy relationship quizzes. So if teens are maybe worried about certain behavior or something they've seen happening to a friend, they can do the quiz and see what score they get. And based on that, it might give them some ideas about like, hey, this seems like a relationship where it's not really healthy for you. Or this seems like something where you feel scared a lot of the time. Um, And that can be really helpful because it's more of like easing them into the idea of it if it's hard for them to accept and then yeah go ahead I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt no it's okay I was just just gonna say it's a great resource and we will put it on the website um we're really nearly out of time do you want to is there any other resources um and then for locally we refer a lot of youth to ready kids because they have a really um expansive youth counseling program and when we say Ready Kids, because this is a national podcast, we're talking about in Virginia oh. and Charlottesville in particular. Yes. And Christine, did you have anything to add before we close this episode up? Yes. Um, I, I wanted to ask, Alex, if, if you could, since we've kind of bounced back and forth about the cycle of abuse, um, you know, when we talk about physical abuse, it's pretty straight, 
forward. What I was hoping maybe you could speak to just a little bit um, for any parents or teens that might be listening is about the nuances to emotional abuse. Um, mm. I, I know Great for question. me, there, there were little things like little threatening things, um, different, different behaviors that would put me in a situation where I was alone, but he had stepped away and then he would come back and like really scare me. Um, mm. Just wondering if you could talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, I think with emotional abuse, for me, it comes down to, do you feel like your feelings matter around this person? Is it all always about what they want, how they feel, what they think is a good idea, what they think you should be like? And then do you always feel like you're stressed out and like, just always on edge around this person because you never know what it's going to be like? Is, are they going to be loving today? Are they going to be upset? Are they going to be blaming you for stuff that hasn't even happened? Right? Like, if you Absolutely. feel like, yeah, if you feel like you're constantly on edge around someone, or like, you have to constantly manage their emotions, usually that's a big sign that it, they're using some kind of emotional manipulation. Right? Yeah, I definitely felt that way. And, and I just came up with one more question, if you don't mind me asking. Um, in, in terms of that, can you talk a little bit about the repercussions um, for teens that have been through something like this? I mean, yeah. I would, you know, PTSD wasn't something that was talked about um, back when I was 14. Um, it certainly wasn't talked about in school. And, you know, it, it took me getting older and growing up and research and a lot of things to figure out that a lot of my anxiety that I still have now as an adult is very much related to that experience that I had with this boy. Um, yeah. Just talk about that just a little bit. Yeah. Anxiety is a really big one. Um, depression's a really big one. That fear of people unhappy or telling people no um, is a huge one. Um, other types of things like eating disorders, self-harm behavior, like those are really common. A lot of times it's teens trying to find somewhere to put the pain um, or somewhere to express it. And then also just that sense of having a really hard time with relationships later in life. So sometimes it'll be like teens just completely cutting themselves off. Like I'm not going to date anybody. I don't trust anyone. Like, I'm not going to go to certain places when it comes with friends, like emotionally, like I just don't trust people or on the other side of the spectrum, where it's a lot of relationships that are very intense, um, that are very emotionally fraught, sometimes relationships that have like really unhealthy power dynamics, like with big age differences or um, where the people are like already dating someone else or something like that it can be really hard to figure it, all of that out if you've never had a safe place to put that pain down. And especially if you're a teen. Oh, yeah. Teens well, really struggle because they don't have a lot of power in society in general. So their relationships sometimes feel like the only place they really can like express that dynamic. Well, I want to thank you, Alex, 
and Christine for sharing your experiences and expertise in this area. Very tough topic to talk about, and I appreciate both of you being here today. And I want to remind all of our listeners, you are not alone. The information provided by Speaking Candidly with Candace is for general information purposes only and is not a substitute for professional advice. If you or someone you know is having suicidal thoughts, please call the National Crisis Hotline 988 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-TALK. This program is produced by Schoner Communications and paid for in part by the generous support of individual and corporate donations. someone you know is a victim of teen dating violence, visit loveisrespect.org or text loveis to the number 22522 to get help now. For more mental health resources, visit voicesformentalhealth.org.